Chapters 33 and 34 of The Avenger by E. Phillips Oppenheim. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter 33 A Hand in the Game. The diners at the Hotel Splendide were a little surprised to see the tall, distinguished looking Englishman leave his seat and accost with quiet deference the elder of the two women whose entrance a few minutes before had occasioned a good many not very flattering comments. The lady who called herself Blanche meant to make the most of her opportunity. "'Fancy meeting you here,' she remarked. "'Flo, this is a friend of mine, Mrs. Harrigod. Gentleman's name doesn't matter, does it?' she added, laughing. Rayson bowed and murmured something inaudible. Blanche's friend regarded him with unconcealed and flattering approval. "'Over here for a little flutter, I suppose,' she remarked. "'It is so hot in town we had to get away somewhere. Are you alone with your friends?' "'Quite alone,' Rayson answered. "'We are only staying for a day or two. The lady nodded. "'We shall stay for a week if we like it,' she said. "'If not, we shall go on to Dieppe. Did you get my letter?' "'Letter?' Rayson repeated. "'No, have you written to me?' She nodded. "'I wrote to you a week ago.' "'I have been staying near here,' Rayson said, "'and my letters have not been forwarded.' He bent a little lower over the table. The perfume of violence scent was almost unbearable, but he did not flinch. "'You had some news for me?' he asked eagerly. "'Yes,' she answered. "'I'm not going to tell you now. We are going to sit outside after dinner. You must come to us there.' "'No good having smart friends unless you make use of them,' she added, with a shrill little laugh. "'I shall take some chairs and order coffee,' Rayson said. "'In the meantime?' "'If you like to order us a bottle of champagne and tell the waiter to put it on your bill, we shan't be offended,' Blanche declared. "'We were just wondering whether we could run to it.' "'You must do me the honor of being my guest for dinner also,' Rayson declared, calling a waiter. "'It was very good of you to remember to write.' The friend murmured something about it being very kind of the gentleman. Blanche shrugged her shoulders. "'Oh, I remember right enough,' she said. "'It wasn't that. But there, wait until I've told you about it. It's an odd story, and sometimes I wish I'd never had anything to do with it. I get a cold shiver every time I think of that old man who took me to dine at Luigi's. Outside in three-quarters of an hour, then?' "'I will keep some chairs and order coffee,' Rayson said, turning away. "'And bring one of your friends,' Blanche added. "'It won't do him any harm. We shan't fight him.' "'I will bring them both,' Rayson promised. He went back to his own table, and people watched him curiously. "'I believe,' he said quietly, as he sat down, "'that if there is a person in the world who can put us on the track of those letters, it is the lady with whom I have just been talking.' The Baron looked across at the two women with new interest. "'What on earth have they got to do with it, Rayson?' he asked. "'The fair one was a friend of Barnes,' Rayson answered. "'It was at her flat that he called the night he was murdered.' "'You are sure,' Duncan asked, "'that the letters have not been found yet by the other side?' "'Quite sure,' the Baron answered. "'We have agents in Mexonia, even about the King's person, and we should hear in an hour if they had the letters.' "'Presuming, then,' Duncan said thoughtfully, that Barnes was murdered for the sake of these letters, and as he was murdered on the very night he was going to hand them over to the other side, I don't see what else we can suppose. The crime would appear to have been committed 
by someone on our side. "'It certainly does seem so,' the Baron admitted. "'And this man Bentham, he was the agent for the King's people. He too was murdered, Baron.' "'Well, who killed Barnes? He robbed me of my right, but I want to know.' The Baron shook his head. "'I have no idea,' he said gravely. "'We have agents in London, of course, but no one who would go to such lengths. I do not know who killed Barnes, nor do I know who killed Bentham.' There was a short silence. The Baron's words were impressively spoken. It was impossible to doubt their veracity. Yet both to Rayson and to Duncan they had a serious import. The same thought was present in the mind of all three of them, and each avoided the other's eyes. Rayson, however, was not disposed to let the matter go without one more effort. The corners of his mouth tightened, and he looked the Baron steadily in the face. "'Baron,' he said, "'I have told you that there is a man in London who has set himself to solve the mystery of Barnes' death. The two people whom he would naturally suspect are Miss Fitzmaurice and myself. There is strong presumptive evidence against us, owing to my silence at the inquest, and at any moment we might either of us have to face this charge. Knowing this, do I understand you to say that, if the necessity arose, you would be absolutely unable to throw any light upon the matter? Absolutely, the Baron declared. Both those murders are as complete an enigma to me as to you. You have agents in London? Agents, yes, the Baron declared. But they are in the nature of detectives only. They would not dream of going to such lengths, either with instructions or without them. Neither, I am sure, would anyone who is employed to collect evidence upon the other side. There was no more to be said. Rayson rose to his feet a little abruptly. The air is stifling here, he said. Let us go outside and take our coffee. They found seats on the veranda, looking out upon the promenade. The baron looked a little dubiously at the stream of people passing backwards and forwards. Are we not a little conspicuous? he remarked. Does it matter? Rayson asked. It is only for this evening. I shall leave for London tomorrow, in any event. Besides, it is part of the bargain that we take coffee with these ladies. Here they are. Rayson introduced his friends with perfect gravity. Chairs were found, and coffee and liqueurs ordered. Rayson contrived to sit on the outside and next to his copper-haired friend. Now for our little talk, he said. Will you have a cigarette? You'll find these all right. She threw a sidelong glance at him and sighed. What an exceedingly earnest young man this was. Well, she said, I know you'll give me no peace till I've told you. There may be nothing in it. That's for you to find out. I think myself there is. It was last Thursday night in the promenade at the Alhambra that I saw her. Saw whom? Rayson interrupted. I'm coming to that, she declared. Let me tell you my own way. I was talking to a friend, and I overheard all that she said. She was quietly dressed, and she looked frightened a poor pale-faced little thing she was anyway, and she was walking up and down like a stage doll, peering round corners and looking everywhere as though she'd lost somebody. Presently she went up to one of the attendants, and I heard her ask him if he knew a Mr. Augustus Howard who came there often. The man shook his head, and then she tried to describe him. It was a bit flattering, but an idea jumped into my head all of a sudden that it was Barnes she was looking for. 
"'By Jove!' Wrayson muttered under his breath. "'Did you speak to her?' She nodded. I waited till she was alone, and then I made her sit down with me and describe him all over again. By the time she'd finished, I was jolly well sure that it was Barnes she was after. "'Did you tell her?' Wrayson asked. "'Not I,' she answered. "'I didn't want a scene there. And besides, it's your little show, not mine.' I told her that I felt sure I recognized him, and that if she would be in the same place at nine o'clock a week from that night, I could send someone whom I thought would be able to tell her about her friend. That was last Thursday. You might want to be just outside the refreshment room at nine o'clock tomorrow night, and you can't mistake her. She looks as though she'd blown in from an ABC shop. Rayson possessed himself of her hand for a moment in an impulse of apparent gallantry something which rustled pleasantly was instantly and safely transferred to the metal purse which hung from her waistband you will allow me he murmured rather she answered with a little laugh what a stroke of luck it was meeting you here flo and i were both stony we hadn't a sovereign between us when we paid for our tickets have you seen anything of barnes brother he asked once or twice at the alhambra she answered he was wearing his brother's clothes but he looked pretty dicky "'You didn't mention this young woman to him, I suppose?' he asked. She shook her head. "'Not I. You're the only person I've told. Hope it brings you luck.' Rayson rose to his feet. The Baron and Duncan followed his example. They took leave of the ladies and turned towards the promenade. "'I'm going to London by the morning boat,' Rayson announced. "'I believe I'm on the track of those letters.' They walked up and down for a few moments talking. After they passed the front of the hotel, they heard a shrill peal of laughter. Blanche and her friend were talking to a little group of men. The Baron smiled. "'We have broken the ice for them,' he said. "'But I am afraid that we are already forgotten.'" End of chapter 33 Chapter 34 An Ill-Assorted Couple Rayson looked anxiously at his watch. It was already ten minutes past nine and although he was standing on the precise spot indicated, there was no one about who in the least resembled the young woman of whom he was in search. The overture to the ballet was being played, a good many people were strolling about, or seated at the small round tables, but they were all of the usual class, the ladies ornate and obvious, and all having the air of habitway. In vain Rayson scanned the faces of the passers-by, and even the occupants of the back seats there was no sign of the young woman of whom he was in search. Presently he began to stroll somewhat aimlessly about, still taking note of everyone amongst the throng, and in a little while he caught sight of a familiar figure sitting alone at one of the small round tables. He accosted him at once. "'How are you, Hanage?' he said quietly. "'What are you doing in town at this time of year?' Hanage started when he was addressed, and his manner when he recognized Rayson lacked altogether its usual composure. "'I'm all right,' he answered. "'Beastly hot in town, though, isn't it? I'm off in a day or two. Where have you been to?' "'North of France,' Rayson answered. "'You look as though you wanted a change. I'm going to Scotland directly I can get away.' The two men looked at one another for a moment. Hanage was certainly looking ill. There were dark lines under his eyes, and his face seemed thinner. Then, too, he was still in his morning clothes, his tie was ill-arranged, and his linen not unexceptionable. Rayson was puzzled. 
something had gone wrong with the man. "'You see,' he said quietly, "'I have been forced to disregard your warning. I shall be in England for some little time at any rate. May I ask, am I in any particular danger?' Anaz shook his head. "'Not from me, at any rate.' Wrayson looked at him for a moment steadily. "'Do you mean that, Hanage? he asked. "'Yes.' "'You are satisfied, then, that neither I nor the young lady had anything to do with the death of Morris Barnes?' Hanage moved in his chair uneasily. "'Yes,' he answered. "'Don't talk to me about that damned business,' he added with a little burst of half-suppressed passion. "'I'm done with it. Come and have a drink.' Wrayson drew a sigh of relief. Perhaps for the first time he realized how great a weight this thing had been upon his spirits. He had feared Hanage not this man but the cold capable stephen hanage of his earlier acquaintance feared him not only for his own sake but hers after all his visit to the alhambra had brought some good to him hanage had risen to his feet we'll go into the american bar he said not here the women fuss round one so i'm glad you've turned up Rayson. i've got the hump the bar was crowded but they found a quiet corner Hanage ordered a large brandy and soda, and drunk half of it at a gulp. "'How's everyone?' Rayson asked. "'I haven't been in the club yet.' "'All right, I believe. I haven't been in myself for a week,' Hanage answered. Rayson looked at him in surprise. "'Haven't been in the club for a week,' he repeated. "'That's rather unusual, isn't it? Damn it all! I'm not obliged to go there, am I?' Hanage exclaimed testily. Rayson looked at him in amazement. Hanage, as a rule, was one of the most deliberate and even-tempered of men. "'Of course not,' he answered. "'You won't mind telling me how the Colonel is, though, will you?' "'I believe he is very well,' Hanage answered more calmly. "'He doesn't come up to town so often this hot weather. Forgive me for being a little impatient, old fellow. I've got a fit of nerves, I think.' "'You want a change,' Rayson said earnestly. "'There's no doubt about that.' "'I am going away very soon,' Hanage answered as soon as i can get off i don't mind telling you rayson that i've had a shock and it has upset me rayson nodded sympathetically all right old chap he said i'm beastly sorry but if you take my advice you'll get out of london as soon as you can go to trouville or dinar or some place where there's plenty of life i shouldn't busy myself in the country if i were you by the by he added there is one more question i should like to ask you if you don't mind hanage called the waiter and ordered more drinks. Then he turned to Rayson. Well, he said, go on. About that little brute Barnes' brother. Is he still about? Hanage's face darkened. He clenched his fist, but recovered himself with a visible effort. Yes, he answered shortly. He is about. He is everywhere. The little brute haunts me. He dogs my footsteps, Rayson. Sometimes I wonder that I don't sweep him off the face of the earth. But why? Rayson asked. What does he want with you? I will tell you, Hanage answered. When he first turned up, I was interested in his story, as you know. We commenced working at the thing together. You understand, Rayson? Perfectly. Well, after a while, it suited me to drop it. Perhaps I told him so, a little abruptly. At any rate, he was disappointed. Now he has got an idea in his brain. He believes that I have discovered something which I will not tell him. He follows me about. He pesters me to death. He is a slave to that one idea, a hideous, almost unnatural craving to get his hands on the source of his brother's money. 
I think that he will very soon be mad. To tell you the truth, I came in here to-night because I thought I should be safe from him. I don't believe he has five shillings to get in the place. Rayson lit a cigarette and smoked for a moment in silence. Then he turned towards his companion. Hanash, he said, I don't want to annoy you, but you must remember that this matter means a good deal to me. I am forced to ask you a question, and you must answer it. Have you really found anything out? You don't often give a thing up without a reason. Hanash answered him with greater composure than he had expected, though perhaps to less satisfactory effect. Look here, Rayson, he said. You appreciate plain speaking, don't you? Rayson nodded. Hanage continued. You can go to hell with your questions. You understand that? It's plain English. Admirably simple, Rayson answered, and perfectly satisfactory. What do you mean? It answers my question, Rayson declared quietly. Hanage shrugged his shoulders. You can get what satisfaction you like out of it, he said doggedly. It isn't much, Rayson admitted. I wish I could induce you to treat me a little more generously. Hanage looked at him with a curious gleam in his eyes. Look here, he said. Take my advice. Drop the whole affair. You see what it's made of me. It'll do the same to you. I shan't tell you anything. You can swear to that. I've done with it, Rayson. Done with it. You understand that? Talk about something else, or leave me alone. Rayson looked at the man whom he had once called his friend. "'You're in a queer sort of mood, Hanage,' he said. "'Let it go with that,' Hanage answered. "'Every man has a right to his moods, hasn't he? No right to inflict them upon his friends, you'd say. Perhaps not, but you know I'm a reasonable person as a rule.' "'Don't! Don't!' He broke off abruptly in his sentence. His eyes were fixed upon a distant corner of the room. Their expression was unfathomable, but Rayson shuddered as he looked away and followed their direction. Then he, too, started. He recognized the miserable little figure whose presence a group just broken up left revealed. Hanage rose softly to his feet. "'Let us go before he sees us,' he whispered hurriedly. "'Look sharp!' But they were too late. Already he was on his way towards them, shambling rather than walking down the room, an unwholesome, unattractive, even repulsive figure. He seemed to have shrunken in size since his arrival in England and his brother's clothes, always too large, hung about him loose and ungraceful. His tie was grimy, his shirt frayed, his trousers turned up but still falling over his heels. His hat, too large for him, came almost to his ears. In the increased pallor and thinness of his face his dark eyes seemed to have come nearer together. He would have been a ludicrous object but for the intense earnestness of his expression. He came towards them with rapidly blinking eyes. He took no notice of Hanage, but he insisted upon shaking hands with Rayson. "'Mr. Rayson,' he said, "'I'm glad to see you again, sir. You always treated me like a gentleman. Not like him,' he added, motioning with his head towards Hanage. "'He's a thief, he is.' "'Steady,' Rayson interrupted. "'You mustn't call people names like that.' "'Why not?' Barnes asked. "'He is a thief. He knows it. He knows who robbed me of my money, and he won't tell. That's what I call being a thief.' Rayson glanced towards Sanage, and was amazed at his demeanour. He had shrunk back in his chair, and he was sitting with his hands in his pockets and his eyes fixed upon the table. Of the two, his miserable little accuser was the dominant figure. 
he's very likely spending it now my money barnes continued here am i living on crusts and fourpenny dinners and begging my way in here and someone else is spending my money never mind it may be my turn yet it may only be a matter of hours he added leaning over towards them and showing his yellow teeth and i may have the laugh on both of you heneage looked up quickly he was obviously discomposed what do you mean he asked sidney barnes indulged in the graceless but expressive proceeding of sticking his tongue in his cheek after which he turned to wrayson mr wrayson he said lend me a quid i've got the flat to sleep in for a few more weeks but i haven't got money enough for a meal i'll pay you back some day perhaps before you expect it wrayson produced a sovereign and handed it over silently if i were you he said i'd spend my time looking for a situation instead of hunting about for this supposed fortune of your brother's barnes took the sovereign with hot trembling fingers and deposited it carefully in his waistcoat pocket then he smiled in a somewhat mysterious manner mr wrayson he said perhaps i'm not so far off after all other people can find out what he knows he added pointing at heneage he ain't the only one who can see through a brick wall say mr wrayson you've always treated me fair and square he added leaning towards him and dropping his voice can you tell me this did morey ever go swaggering about calling himself by any other name bit more tony eh wrayson started for a moment he did not reply thoughts were rushing through his brain was he forestalled in his search for this girl meanwhile barnes watched him with a cunning gleam in his deep-set eyes such as augustus howard eh real tony name that for maury wrayson with sudden instinctive knowledge brushed him on one side and half standing up gazed across the room at the corner from which his questioner had come with her back against the wall her cheap prettiness marred by her red eyes her ill-arranged hair and ugly hat sat beyond a doubt the girl for whom he had waited in the promenade end of chapter thirty four recording by tom weiss tom's audiobooks dot com